main mantra. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be in your house today. I pray that you have led our hearts and minds be open to your word. Be with our pastor as he delivers our message and give us a great week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned that my sermon, I borrowed a lot of stuff from Randy Alcorn's book. I said, I'd buy a couple. If anybody wants one, I'd give it to you for free. The kicker is you got to read at least half of it. And I only have four left. So I'm just going to put them here. If you would like a copy, come get your free copy after the service is over. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay, so let me begin with a caveat. Um, if you are new here and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this message is going to focus on those who've already said yes to following Jesus. And uh, hopefully it will be relevant for you as well. You'll at least have an understanding of, of what uh, the Lord and Master of the Universe calls us to. But I just want to apologize from the beginning that I'm not focusing on, on the speaker. I'm more focusing on the person who says I want to follow. And if you're like me, doesn't always follow as well as I'd like to follow. There's some obstacles that get in the way. Um, oh, uh, one other comment. Um, at the end, we're going to do communion, and we're going to do it a little different than we've done it here before. We're using a practice that's ancient. It's been around uh, over 1,500 years. But it's taking the body and the blood, taking the, the bread and the cup simultaneously, it's an opportunity to take it uh, individually. Normally, we pick up the elements, we go back, and we all take it at once. But in this context, we're going to have one cup at each place, and we're going to take it simultaneously. It's actually called intinction, and I'll just demonstrate for you so when we get there, you'll know what to do. There's nothing worse than, like, approaching God and having no clue what to do. Um, and so hopefully I don't do that to you. Um, intinction is a matter of taking the bread, There'll be someone standing behind. They'll probably say something like, the body of Christ broken for you. Uh, you'll dip it in the cup. Please don't put your fingers down in just the bread. Pull it out. And partake. Um, if that weirds you out, we do have some Lunchables over on the side. But we would ask that you not stand there for three minutes trying to take that thing apart while everyone's waiting. So just grab it and move off to the side and partake of it individually. This is your moment at the table with Jesus. Okay? Um, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, and yet in this message, uh, God is, is pricking your heart, God's touching your heart, and you say, you know what? Jesus, I think, 
I think I want to step into your kingdom. I think I'm going to take you at your word. Uh, then, then we invite you to come at that moment because uh, salvation is not about getting your life together and then coming to God. It's about acknowledging your life is not together and coming to God so that he can do something about that. And so this is an opportunity to come and to partake of his broken body, his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins for you that you might have new life in Christ. And if you do that and it's your first time, uh, it's probably a good idea afterwards to tell someone that you respect in the faith because they'll help nurture you. Um, I would love if you told me. I, I mean, I dance a little jig and get excited because I think God gets really excited about that stuff. But you can tell any of the worship leaders. You can tell Pastor Ryan. You can tell me. By the way, I'm Pastor Matt, one of the other pastors who has the privilege to shepherd here. Okay. So, um, two weeks ago, money. All in, stewarding it. Last week, body, all in, stewarding it, taking care of it. This week, I'd like to talk about your soul. And this is really why uh, it's geared more toward believers. Jesus said this. He said, you know, if you win the billion-dollar lottery and yet lose your soul, what have you gained? Nothing. He didn't say lottery. I know that. But he actually said if you gain everything, you get it all. And you lose your soul, you get nothing. Um, a few years ago, I was spring cleaning, and I was uh, out at my garden, and the garden, like, butted up against the, the garage, and, and I was raking leaves. And um, I, it was by the grass and by the end, and, and I hadn't done my fall cleaning. You know, you're supposed to, like, get those leaves off of some of the stuff. And leaves, if you leave them there all winter and piled up, what do they do? Say it loud and proud. They rot, yeah. And so I'm scraping some of these rotten leaves off of the stuff that I should have taken care of, and I'm scraping it off. Here is this plant that I absolutely love that I didn't tend to in the fall, and it is this yellow, wimpy, uh, I mean, it was almost dead, just laying on the ground as I pulled the leaves off. I thought, oh, I killed it. I can't believe that. And yet I came back a week later, and that wilted yellow plant in one week's exposure to the sun. It stood tall, it was green, it was perky, and it was bigger. Folks, that's your soul. The, 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 the plant that God, the seed that God planted in you when you said yes to Jesus was a living thing. You became new. You became Jesus talks about it being born again. You, you got to start all over. Something came alive inside of you. And that life inside of you, by its very nature, grows. We often talk about, what do we do to grow? Well, what I want to say is, this morning, in Matthew 18, what Jesus teaches us in order to grow is we need to just simply scrape off all of those rotting leaves that we've let sit on top of our plant and cause wilting, and cause yellowing, and cause atrophy. You scrape it off, and you're going to grow. It's what plants do. And so I would like to go through Matthew 18 and just show a couple of those, and I'm going to try to take um, Jesus' approach to this. Uh, Jesus, he frustrates some of us preachers, because he'll make a point in one sentence, and then he'll pick the same illustration, he'll make another point, and he'll move on to the next point, and he'll move on to the next point, 
And after three or four points, maybe he'll land on one and he'll unpack that. And I always feel this need to like elaborate on every point. Um, I think probably the problem is that Jesus trusted the Holy Spirit and I have a difficult time doing that. And so I'm going to try to take a bit of a Jesus style. The, the points that he just kind of mentions and moves on, I'm going to try to mention and move on. And, and then the one obstacle that he kind of lands on and he hangs out for uh, the rest of Matthew 18, I, I want to take some time and, and unpack for you. I'm going to talk about the miserable rotten leaves that you're allowing to grow over top of your life-giving plant that's intended to grow. Is that fair? Can we do that today? Okay. So, the first one. Pride. Jesus finds this little child, and by the way, I was hoping, Rachel, that your kid was going to be running around up here because I was going to pick him up. You know, that was going to be my object lesson because Jesus just did that, you know. he just see the kid running around, he'd pick him up. And, and he said, you know what, uh, you need to become like this one. And in fact, not only do you need to become like this one, that, that those who are humble like this little kid equals greatness in the kingdom of God. Boom. And then Jesus goes and changes the whole illustration. He's got the same freaking kid in his arms. And instead of talking about the kid, he talks about you. And you know what? If you don't let that little kid in, if you don't receive that kid, you've got an obstacle called judgmentalism. Pride sitting over top of the life that God has birthed in your heart will wilt it. So it will judgmentalism. Now, Jesus went on, forgive me, I can't. i got to say just a little bit. Because one of the favorite verses that people love to use is, judge not lest you be judged. And when they use that, what they usually mean by that is, I am doing something I know I probably shouldn't be doing. You know I probably shouldn't be doing it. And I don't want you to tell me that I shouldn't be doing it. So judge me lest you be judged, you know. And it's, just, it's kind of an excuse. You know, the Bible has two parts about that. Judge not lest you be judged. And on the other side of that one is he that is spiritual judges. No, 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 no. He that is spiritual judges all things. Here's a distinction. I don't judge you. But we are called to judge behavior. I mean, how cruel is it a parent who never corrects the behavior of their child. If you never correct the behavior of your child, you'll end up raising your child to think that mouthing off all the time is a good idea and it's going to work until they get into a bar and they get popped and hopefully it's a fist and not a gun. Conversely, never belittle a child. I mean, have you ever seen a parent that just screams at their kid and belittles them? I mean, have you ever been that parent? You ever caught yourself? I don't know if I told this here. If I did, forgive me. But at one point, I was yelling at my son. He was like 16, 17 years old. I don't remember what he did, but I was kicked. And I'm letting him have it. And his friends were standing in the room. And this is in Ashland, Ohio, a rather conservative town. Um, we were probably the, the uh, least strict parents in my son's friend group, you know. We were kind of, they loved to hang out at our house because we, we let him do things that the other parents were like not sure, you know. And, and, uh, but I'm, I'm just railing on him, and these other kids are like watching this. And my son looks at me and he goes, Dad, you're up here. I need you down here. All of his friends thought I was going to pop him, but he was freaking right. 
I mean, the judge not left to be judged. Receive the child. Judgmentalism will crush you. But don't hear by that that we don't take the time to love. There's a phrase we often have used here for years that says, I love you just the way you are. I love you too much to leave you there. That's the call here. Okay, I think you get it. Number three, Jesus kind of moves on and he talks about causing temptation. Um, do you know sin loves company? Uh, in fact, I think that, that sin often tries to entice others into the same behavior because if we're doing something that violates God's law, uh, we know it. Part of it we know because of our conscience, part of it because of creation, part of it because of teaching. If you're a Christian, it's because the Holy Spirit is there and He's working on you. But if we can normalize our sinful behavior, somehow we don't quite feel so bad. I get a lot of other people doing it. You know, what, what's the excuse? Well, well, they're doing it. And I don't know about you, but my parents said, I'm not their parent. Causing temptation. You know, this one actually... Jesus gives a woe. He said, sin's inevitable. It's coming. This is in Matthew 18. Sin's coming. It's inevitable. But woe to the person who brings it. So Jesus regularly wows me. I want to be wowed by Jesus, but not woed by Jesus. So causing temptation. Uh, there's one more, and then I'm going to get to the main one. Uh, Jesus talks about good things that lead to sin. Uh, in this passage, uh, he says, if your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out. Um, is, are the eyes good? I like my eyes. They're really helpful. If your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. And by the way, lest you think I'm going there, this is not uh, an encouragement to actually pluck your eye out. I heard John Stott say a long time ago, he said, you know, if plucking my eye out could deal with lust in my, in my body, it'd be great. But unfortunately, I got a second eye to see. And then he said, and if you pluck out both eyes, I have enough illicit uh, images in my brain that I can lust for two decades without any eyes. So it's not about pulling out your eyes. It's not about cutting off your hand. But the point that Jesus is making is even the good thing, the valuable thing, if it's dragging you into, if it, if it becomes, if it itself becomes a pile of leaves sitting on top of the life-giving birth that God has has created in you, then get rid of it. Just scrape it off. Okay. So I went through those fast, and what I want to do now is get to the one that Jesus camps on. And he camps on it for a pretty long time. Because here's the deal. Pride will destroy your soul. Judgment, judgmentalism will destroy your soul. In fact, I heard someone, a good friend of mine one time, liken it to it's like we try to hold hands with someone, but before we hold hands, we take shards of glass and put them in our hand and then grab their hand with pride or judgmentalism. And there's no real relationship there. But on this one, unforgiveness, folks, unforgiveness will, will do you in. The Bible often talks about a root of bitterness. Do you know roots will crush the foundation of a home? Now, they don't do it automatically. I think if, if roots were, like, aggressive, we would get a war against them. But they got a really slow way of doing it. The plant looks pretty when it first comes up. A little close to the house, but you don't notice it. 
And then over time, little pieces of root just kind of get in a tiny little crack. No big deal. But over time, unattended roots will get in and expand and literally destroy the foundation of a house. That's why the scriptures talk about bitterness, that thing that we nurture, the unforgiveness that we tend to, to, to give food to, that we tend to like. It's like a root, and it crushes. You know, my dad uh, gave his heart to the Lord, I don't know, four or five times. He didn't grow up a Christian. Uh, he's, when, when I became a Christian, he thought it was like the hula hoop, you know, it was the trend, it was going to be cool for a little bit, and then it'd be gone, and, and when it stayed. And his first uh, conversion prayer was before his first uh, open-heart bypass surgery. Back in those days, they cracked you open for all of them. Now they don't have to crack them all open, thank God, but cracked them open. And, and before that, he was scared, asked to, you know, would I pray for him, wanted to accept Jesus, I said, sure. And he was like that seed on the rocky soil because three days later, after the surgery, he came out well and Jesus' stuff was gone. And he did it the second time. And the third time he had bypass surgery, uh, I was actually in Toronto, and uh, I was supposed to be uh, preaching at our denominational, binational, um, every other year uh, gathering by and, and doing the keynote speech. And, and they were driving him from Harrisburg to Washington, D.C., because if he did the surgery in Harrisburg, he only had a 50% chance of living. And they called me, let me know, and I had to apologize. I had to step out of the preaching engagement put my three little kids in the car. Lori and I drove uh, through the night to get down to be with my dad. But man, I was not going to do another one of those. Let's say you want to accept Jesus before you go into the knife deals. I remember talking to him and, and uh, remember asking if I'd pray for him. And here was why. He said, um, Matt, when, I want you to pray for me and then I want to talk about prayer because, because my prayers just bounce off the sky and, and yours get through and, and I want to know why. And I said, Dad, I'm going to pray for you and then after you come out of this, let's talk about it. We had the privilege three weeks later of talking about it. And here's, here's the deal, folks. Prayer is nothing more than a conversation with someone that you know. And I said, Dad, the, the challenge for you is you're, you're having a conversation. You're trying to have a conversation with someone you don't know. And in that context, not under the fear of the knife, he had survived that. Uh, we had a meaningful conversation. He had a conversion prayer. I was still pretty cynical. And I was really cynical until about a month and a half later, I talked to him. I said, Dad, how's it going with that talking to God, that prayer thing? He said, I don't know, but, you know, I've had grudges for decades that I'm actually giving up. Folks, that's what Jesus does. In fact, the Bible connects our forgiveness to our forgiving pretty profoundly. And quite frankly, it makes me uncomfortable, but I don't get to write the scriptures. I only get to preach them. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, the, the, the passage of, of scripture that you probably have memorized, probably like 98% of you, uh, it's the Lord's Prayer. It's actually the church's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, you know that prayer. Why is it we like leave out the two lines that follow it? We get all the way to the part where Jesus then says, that if you don't forgive another their sin, neither will my heavenly Father forgive you. That's what he says. And if you're one of those folks that says, well, that's not for our age, that's for another age, then let's try James 2.13. For judgment without mercy to one who has... For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. There is this, this connection 
between God's forgiveness birthing in us a transformed life that just most naturally begins to forgive. And unfortunately, when bitterness uh, wells up in our life, we can tend to nurture it. Bitterness is a little bit like booze. Um, when you take it, you feel better for a period of time. If you take it in excessive amounts, you feel a whole lot better until the next morning. And if you take it in excessive amounts over a long period of time, you actually become addicted to it, and you can't feel normal without it. All of life gets focused around this, this unforgiveness, this bitterness, this resentment that you hold in your life. And, and while, you're, while you're taking doses of it in order to feel normal, all the while it's destroying the very innards of your body. If the alcohol will, will, over time, destroy your liver, and so too bitterness will destroy the, the liver of your spirit. That which produces, which, which processes toxins in your life. And you become un unable to even process those toxins. I mean, the, there, there are so many parallels. And so God is saying, folks, I want you to grow. And if you have that unforgiveness, let's scrape it off. The rest of this message will talk about how Jesus tells us to scrape it off. Okay, first of all, you ever heard the phrase, uh, forgive and forget? Forget that phrase. Um, I like the phrase, forgive and forego, and we'll get more to it later. But forgiveness is not about forgetting. If someone's violated you and they repeatedly violate you, I don't encourage you to forget it. I, I encourage you to forgive it, but I also encourage you to get boundaries, to get means by which they can't continue to, to violate you. I mean, violation is not a healthy thing for you or for them. So forget to forgive and forget. Uh, and one of the ways we do that, Jesus, when he begins this conversation about forgiveness, tells us to when someone does something against you, go to them. Uh, how many people have you known that they just, they're telling you about how, how bad this person treated them and all the stuff that they've done and, and how it's ruining their life and how it's so miserable and they can't feel like they can go to work and you go, well, what do they say when you talk to them? I didn't. Jesus starts by saying, go talk to them. But, but here again are a couple caveats. Uh, confronting is not accusing. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to someone and in the conversation I've realized, oh boy, it was my misperception. I didn't get it. So when you go, you don't, you don't go with guns loaded. Confronting is, is carefronting. It's saying something's not right and we need to work at this and, and get it right. You know, there's a story of a Winchester resident at the beginning of the Civil War. Hayward Shepard was a night watchman for the Winchester Potomac Railroad. And as he was doing his nightly rounds, there were a bunch of armed men up on a bridge. He realized this wasn't good, turned around, started walking away. They yelled at him and told him to stop, and he began to run away, and they shot him in the back. What's ironic about that is John Brown's abolitionist militia, who were crusading against slavery in the South, just shot a black, unarmed, free man in the back, just trying to feed his eight kids. I think they misunderstood the conflict a little bit. Fair? Folks, the goal of confrontation is not confronting. It's reconciliation. 
The goal of confrontation is not showing yourself right. It's reconciliation. And I know, I know it can be really difficult at times. It's like, here's my litmus test for confronting. That, that you can take this away if you don't remember anything else I said. If you feel like confronting, you probably shouldn't. And if you don't feel like confronting, you probably should. Confronting is the first step of getting to the place of true forgiveness. Because if someone continues and continues, in fact, have you ever had someone who, I mean, they're, they're violating you and they don't even know it. They don't realize it. It's not in their heart. I had one just this week. And it wasn't a big thing. But man, it was a wonderful conversation. I mean, wonderful. It was with someone that I greatly respected. I, 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 I mean, just to honor her in, in the nth degree. But there was a thing that I'm like, you know, this is bothering me. And I talked to her and she said, oh, I had no idea. Wow. Done. Over. Praise the Lord. But Jesus goes on to say that if, if you confront and you can't get resolution, I want you to then find another person and, and, and go with the other person. See, here's the other place where sometimes we think confronting is the goal. And so it's like, well, I did my, I did my part. No, no, no. The goal is not to confront. The goal is reconciliation. And so you go back and you say, look, we haven't, we haven't arrived at this and we can't do it. So let me, let me bring someone. And by the way, if I ever take a third party, I try to take someone they trust. I always try to take someone that, that they respect more than me. Because I might be wrong. Bring the third person. In fact, Jesus takes it all the way up to, to tell the church. But again, it, it's not so much about church discipline. It's about church reconciliation. Okay, um, when you work at reconciliation, it's fascinating that Jesus in Matthew 18 gives this incredibly powerful promise, and it's a promise that often is is um, misused. And the way they misuse it, I don't mind because the concept they're saying is true. You know, if if you if you have a, a group of people, two or three people that are studying the Bible, Jesus is there and the Holy Spirit is there. And I believe that. I, I absolutely believe that. But this promise is not about that. This promise is about conflict resolution. That when you're stepping into a, 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 a concerning issue and you know you need to do it, you've rehearsed it in your mind 10 times, you've looked at your own soul 15 times, you, and you finally said, we need to talk about it. Jesus says, if you will do that, I promise you a special promise that I'm going to show up. And if when you and the other person do it, if you can't make it, bring in a third because I'm going to show up again. If there are two or three gathered in my name, it's got to be in his name. If you come in the humility of Christ and you say, you know what? There, there's unforgiveness here. Let's scrape it off and let's start by getting it right between you and I. By the way, you know, I, I do this. Um, if you have a spouse, look at your spouse. <laughs> you know, how often are we sure that what they did was just wrong? Okay, you get it. I don't need to say more. I probably should, but I won't. Okay. Forgiveness comes from mercy and leads to mercy. Uh, this, I love this part of the story. Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And, and Peter pipes up, and, and Peter thinks he is going to get an award for being incredibly forgiving. Um, in rabbinic law, 
the rabbinic law had, had dialed in this whole forgiveness thing, saying if someone offends you three times, you must forgive them. It comes really from a passage in Amos, Amos chapter 1 and Amos chapter 2, which repeats over and over and over and over and over again the same little phrase. And the phrase is, um, for three transgressions and for four. And then again, for three transgressions and for four. And so the, the rabbis talked about that and they concluded that certainly man is not more merciful than God. And if, if Amos distinguishes between three and four, we must get, forgive three times. In fact, it, it concretizes in Rabbi Jose ben Yuda, who said, if a man commits an offense once, forgive him. If a man commits offense twice, forgive him. If a man commits the same offense three times, forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. So Peter's like, yeah, I'm going to get one up on Jesus here. The law says three times. Jesus, how about twice as much as the law plus one? And Jesus' response, and I'm paraphrasing here, knucklehead. No, not seven times. Seventy times seven. You don't get it. And then he goes on to tell this story about uh, 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 an unmerciful servant. There's this guy who owns, who owns 10,000 talents. Uh, you know, I know we don't trade in talents today, so just a little context. One talent was the equivalent of 20 years of wages for a day laborer. One talent. So this guy owes 10,000 times 20 years of wages of a day laborer. It's an impossible amount to ever pay. And the master says, you must pay. He says, I can't. He says, well, sell his kids, sell his wife, sell his stuff, throw him in prison. And he begs him, please, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. I'll pay you. Whatever. I'll, I'll do it. Which is ridiculous. You're not going to. But he's trying. I'll pay you. And the master has mercy, has compassion, and forgives him. You know this story, right? And then the guy goes out, and he's walking down the hall, and he sees a guy who owes him about three months' worth of wages. He grabs him. He throttles him, says, pay me. The guy says, I can't. And he gives the exact same plea. He says, oh, forgive me. Forgive me. I'll pay. I'll pay. I promise. I'll get it. I, I got this business deal. I'm going to make it work. Don't worry. I'll pay you. And the guy says, no way. And he throws him in prison until he can pay. And some of the guys who were in the room at both times sees it, goes and tells the master, and when he tells the master, here's how Jesus ends the story. The master was moved with anger and handed him over to the torturer until he would pay all that was owed him. So too will my heavenly Father do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And I'd like to end by talking about forgiveness from the heart because I don't know about you, but that's not an easy thing to do. There's a Catholic priest from the 70s, charismatic Catholic priest from the 70s, Father John Powell, who wrote a book in one of the chapters. I can't remember the book. I wish I could, but I remember the lesson. He talked about the stages of forgiveness and getting to the place where we forgive from the heart. And if you'll permit me, I'd like to walk you through this. He says the first level of forgiveness is cliché. Uh, to illustrate cliche, this is where your eight-year-old and your six-year-old are fighting over the dump truck. The six-year-old has it. The eight-year-old takes it. The six-year-old grabs it, rips it out. They start to fight. 
the six-year-old clocks the eight-year-old in the head with the metal thumbtack. Crying ensues. Mother hears about it. Mother runs in. Mother yells at them, discerns what happens, and she gets them kind of like apart. And then she says, I want you to apologize to your brother for hitting him. But, but he took my truck. No, apologize. You can't. I'm going to take the truck away if you don't apologize. Sorry. Now you tell your brother you accept it. But he, he hit me in the head. You tell him now. And then after that, you know, they'll hug one another. Those kids have no clue what you're talking about. It's cliche. And by the way, lefties make fun of kids. How many of us? Oh, I forgive you. And you can tell in their voice. Well, you see it in marriage. Uh, it's not about forgiveness. Really? Okay. Cliche. Father Powell says, under the cliche, inside of the cliche of your heart is just the facts. And this is where you can actually name the loss. What is it that needs forgiving? Often we can't even identify the thing that, that is churning inside of us. But being able, you, you do realize that every time that forgiveness is required, it's because there's been a loss involved. I mean, it might be the loss of a dump truck. It might be the loss of paying for your living. It might be the loss of reputation. It might be, it might be the loss of honor. It might be the loss of, of, of purity. I mean, there's all kinds of losses. And it's because we've lost something that it hurts. And because it hurts, that, that forgiveness becomes part of it. And, and Father John Powell says, a step is being able to at least name what the offense is. But then he says, underneath that naming the offense, this is what this is what I need to forgive or what I need forgiven. He says, is from values and judgment. And he says, if here is the beginning place of true biblical forgiveness. This is the place where this is the place where you say, you know what? You owe me. And I choose not to collect on this debt. This is, a, this is a place through the will. This is a choice. It's a choice that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a choice that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of scraping leaves off of that plant. And it's an important act. It's a hard act, and it requires prayer. It requires infusion of spirit power into your life. I had a, a business partner, um, he was my best friend, he was, a, he was my spiritual father, and it went bad. I mean, it really went bad. And um, my forgiveness was absolute, my behavior was in line with it, I, I chose not to collect on the debt, I forgave, but two years later, I heard his voice and I cried, because I wasn't fully healed. My forgiveness was not, it was from my will, but it was not from my heart. When you find yourself in the car and you're arguing with the person that you forgave and they're not in the car, it's probably an indicator that there's some more work to be done for God. There's some more miserable, rotten leaves sitting on top of that plant of your life that God has intended to flourish and grow. And the Lord is encouraging you to take the next step in scraping those leaves off of that plant. This is the place where we forgive from our feelings. This is the place where 
supernatural healing comes as you choose to yield to the act of God. This is the place where you say, I'm tired of drinking that cup of bitterness, although it makes me feel better in the moment because it's destroying the innards of my life and soul. It's, it's keeping the plant from that God wants it to grow. So when I, uh, when I was 16, uh, I was riding on the back of a motorcycle in shorts, and the guy laid it down, and my leg came down on the, the exhaust thing. And you know that exhaust thing has like little slats? And the little slats were like a knife, and they just cut the skin, and then second, third degree burns. And we go back to his house, and he can't tell his mom that the bike's out, and she tells it's great, and so she starts rubbing it with a warm rush cloth. And she bandaged it up. She put burn cream on it, bandaged it up, and I went home. And, and when my mom took it off, I mean, there's just pus all over the place, and I had to go and had to get. So for months, if you got near my leg, I'd push you away. I couldn't wear pants. If pants touched that spot, it was excruciating pain. And then once I got where I could wear shorts, if you would walk up and I thought you might just bump it. And sometimes with the pain and the hurt that we have where we need to forgive, it's like that. We're fearful because we've been hurt. I mean, it really hurt. But when you get to the place of forgiving from the heart, so I could show you the mark. I mean, I still have the scar, but it doesn't control my behavior at all. The scar is there. But the affecting who I am and how I behave is gone. God wants to do a work in your life that is so profound and so supernatural that it's not just an act of the will saying, I choose not to collect on this debt, but you can actually be like Jesus who on the cross speaks a blessing over the people who just stuck nails to his hands. By the way, if you say, well, how come Jesus could get there? Folks, all of his ministry life, he was practicing the act of forgiveness. And then knowing he was going into the, the cross, he did, he did business in the Garden of Gethsemane. He dealt with forgiveness preemptively. I know what's coming. I'm going to do business with God at the beginning because I want to be able to hang on that cross and I want to look at the people who are, who are sticking nails in my hand and nails in my feet and say, Father, forgive them. I want to look at the people for whose sins through all creation I am paying the wrath of God on the cross for and look at them and say they don't know what they're doing. That's a place where you forgive from the heart and that's a supernatural work and that's the work that I'm, I'm inviting you into as we partake of his shed blood and broken body. Worship team, you can come on up. Father John Powell says there's one last stage, and that's the place of the core. This is that deep-seated place where God has just done a miraculous work. This is Mandela after he gets out of prison and invites some of those safe folks in his cabinet. And then Father John Powell says this, and it, and it just it, it took, me, took my breath away. He said, because forgiveness requires some kind of loss, 
The process is the process of grieving. And all of us know that grieving isn't something that you're in total control over. It takes time and it takes work. And in the area of forgiveness, it takes time, it takes work, and it takes a profound input from the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you don't have that input from the Holy Spirit, if you if your plant has never given birth, but you man, you'd love to experience that joy of freedom, the table will be here for you. Say yes to Jesus. But if you're like me and you've said yes to Jesus 150 times, and you're saying yes again today, because Lord, I know there's more work that you want to do within me, then we're going to invite you to the table. James Earl Massey, great African-American preacher, theologian, tells us about our soul that beckons to God and sees obstacles that keep us from what our soul beckons. There are times when the soul aches for the touch of God. The ache is intense, forceful, unsettling. It gnaws within, gripping the consciousness with authority and unrelenting hold. The ache. It's a sign of a growing distance between the soul and God. The inward ache will refuse to yield except that that upon which it calls. Folks, this morning, if your heart's broken, you can give him your broken heart. You can give him your fragmented life. The only caveat is you've got to give him all the pieces. He wants it all. So let me review these with five steps. Number one, name a particular offense. Sometimes God is doing work in our life. Name the offense. And just the facts, say, Lord, I, I forgive Harry for. Name it. Then acknowledge that judgment belongs to the Lord, not to you. This is from my will. Values and judgment. I choose not to collect on this debt. And then ask God about this feeling stuff. Lord, would you root out, would you release feelings of bitterness and resentment and hatred? God, would you do this in me? Because I want to live a godly life. I want to live free. And then from the core, ask God to help you release, truly release, no longer argue with them while you're in the car and they're not. Truly release this person from your judgment. The last one's a litmus test. This is, we added this to our list because often we think we're there and then we get to this place where we realize we're not. So if, like, have you ever done the keto test? You know, you pee on a little strip and it gets purple and you're getting ketones? Or you've done a COVID test and it's got to have like two little lines and that's the second line. This is where the second line shows up. Write a blessing for the person. Wherever you need to forgive. Sit down and write a full-throated, all-heart, God blessing upon this individual. And if it's hard, don't be discouraged. That's common. It just means go back to step one and start over. In fact, you might have to do that for a couple months. It might, because grieving has this weird way of taking on a life of its own. But I promise you, on the authority of God's word, 
But if you will press in, his forgiveness is complete. And his forgiveness produces complete forgiveness in the heart of those who will say yes to him and follow. As our worship team sings over us, I encourage you.